Welcome back, Donuts. Welcome to another episode of Fright Dough, your weekly fix of true crime. I'm your girl, Gina. And on every episode, I always want to remind listeners that the stories that I cover on this podcast may be difficult to hear. However, it is very important to shine a light on these cases and remember the victims who were affected. This is Fried Doe, true crime podcast, and this is the case of Lizzie Borden, part two. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, gave her father 41. So we left off with Andrew, he was just killed, and Lizzie sent for the police, the doctor, and her friend Alice. Lizzie also called over to the neighbor and told her what happened and invited her over. At this time, they didn't have no knowledge of preserving a crime scene. And it took a while for the police to get there because, after all, this was before 911. So when the police got there, they started questioning everyone. The first serious suspect was Uncle John Morris, but he had an airtight alibi. After breakfast, Uncle John talked with Andrew about an hour and then he left to supposedly go across town to visit some more family members. He also remembered the number of the trolley, the number of the hat that was on the conductor's head. Also, he remembered that there were six priests on that trolley. Mm, That sounds a little bit too perfect. And the police thought that as well. But when the conductor was asked later by the police, the conductor was like, yeah, I remember the six priests, but I don't remember him. But his his alibi was airtight. Bridget, she was quickly dismissed for lack of motive. They thought that Bridget would have been a perfect suspect. Why, you ask? Well, simply because Bridget was an Irish immigrant. Just let that sink in for a minute. And they basically just said that because of the manner of the killing. They said that whoever did it had a lot of strength and they was familiar with the hatchet. And Lizzie just didn't fit that bill to them. But Bridget had a plausible account for her morning activities, corroborated in part by Lizzie herself. And a random act of a stranger breaking into their home and killing them in this order. And since no theft was involved, was unlikely. And Bridget testified that she herself locked both of the doors. And if it was a business enemy of Andrew who had committed the crime, police wonder why would he kill Abby first? And how did he go undetected in that house for almost two hours waiting for Andrew to come back? So that day after the investigation, the doctor got there a day later and he needed to do the autopsy and he needed help to move the body. So some of the officers helped him to move the body. Where did they move the body to? <laughs> Let me tell you, they moved the bodies to the dining room table. So, yes, you heard me correctly. After removing the clothes, they did the autopsy in the house, in the dining room, on the dining room table. He removed both stomachs and sent them to Harvard so they can get looked at. And the contents of the stomach, along with the blood coagulating around Abby, prove that Abby died before Andrew. And two, yeah, you caught that too. 
the body stayed in the house overnight because the doctor was away and couldn't get back to the town until that next day. Mm -hmm. On Saturday, August 6th, services was held for Andrew and Abby Borden at Oak Grove Cemetery in Fall Rivers. And apparently at these times, there is a mourning outfit that ladies have to wear. And if it was your parents, you have to wear a veil. Lizzie wasn't having none of that. She was wearing a form-fitting dress, probably had her corset snatched for the gods, and a cute little hat tilted to the side, I'm assuming, but that's how the ladies wore their hats at that time. If I find a morning dress of the Victorian age, I'm going to post that because I'm a little interested in what that looks like too. So also it's good to know that during this time, a year after your parents die, you're not supposed to wear colors. And Lizzie was wearing flashy and popping colors. After the pallbearers unburdened themselves, the family members departed. Then, after about five minutes, police returned the caskets to the hearse. They had been ordered not to bury the bodies. Dr. William Dolan, the county medical examiner, assisted by Dr. Frank Draper, performed the second autopsy in the Oak Grove Cemetery Ladies' Lounge on Thursday, August 11th, a week after the murders. After the funeral, the mayor informed Lizzie that she was a suspect, and on Tuesday, August 9th, Judge Josiah Blaisdell issued a subpoena for her to appear at an inquest. During the inquest, it was difficult for Lizzie to account for her whereabouts that morning. She stated when her stepmother was murdered, she had been in the kitchen and in the dining room ironing handkerchiefs. However, when her father was murdered, she said she had gone to the barn. At one point, she mentioned she was looking for lead to make a sinker because she was planning on going fishing. Then she said that she was looking for lead to fix a screen, but there wasn't a screen broken in their house. She also said that she sat up there for about 20 minutes and she ate a pear. But when the police searched the barn, there was no fingerprints and there were even cobwebs everywhere and it was very hot in that barn. But Lizzie was given morphine to calm her nerves by the doctor. Morphine. She was on one hell of a high. So that could be the reason why she was given different answers. But she wasn't the only one who was messing up her case for her. A pharmacist came forward with what happened in his store a day before the murder. A druggist from Fall Rivers named Eli Bentz claimed that Lizzie had gone into his store and tried to purchase prosic acid. Prosic acid is hydrogen cyanide. Lizzie claimed that she wanted to clean a seal skin cape with the prosic acid to kill the moths. They said no simply because prosic acid, they said, was only used at that time just for basically for ending lives. So ultimately, they refused to sell Lizzie the prosic acid because you needed a prescription for that at that time. So. Mr. Bentz and two other people who were in the store claimed that they recognized Lizzie Bort. They noted that they noticed her so well because of the manner that she spoke to them. I don't know if that's bad or good. This was the day before the murders. 
So Lizzie was subpoenaed and she had to have an inquest. She had to take the stand and answer all kinds of questions from the prosecutors because no one actually knew where Lizzie was when the murders actually happened. She told them so many stories. The inquest took five days and on the fifth day, the judge was like, yeah, I don't know if you did it or not, but it's a lot against you. So we just going to arrest you today. So Lizzie was arrested on August 11th, 1892 for the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden. But on the arrest warrant, it only had Andrew Borden's name on it. They allowed Lizzie to go home and pack for her arrest because she was going to jail and she needed to pack. Lizzie's arrest was one of three in Fall Rivers that year and only one woman. Lizzie was transferred to Taunton, Massachusetts because there were no facilities for women prisoners in Fall Rivers. And since murder was a non-bellable offense, she ended up staying incarcerated until the beginning of her trial in June, 1893. But on August 12, 1892, at her arraignment, she pled not guilty. She had many people backing her, like her ministers and people from all the groups that she belonged with all supported Lizzie. Lizzie bought the best defense that her father's money could buy. This case was basically the O.J. Simpson case. It was like the trial of the century for them. Everybody wanted to know if Lizzie Borden was going to be found innocent or guilty and then they wanted to know the details of the crime and the trial itself people would be waiting outside hours early before the case even before the trial even started just to try to get a seat inside there was actually a guy who was an attention seeker he actually turned himself in for this crime but he was easily ruled out after hearing the prosecution's opening remarks against Lizzie, she collapsed in a dramatic faint. Pause. It's funny that she can collapse for words that somebody says against her, but she didn't collapse when she found her father's head bashed in. Just something to think about. Her cell was nine and a half feet long and seven feet wide furnished with a bed, a chair, and a wash bowl. Lizzie also enjoyed special privileges. She had things from her room like linen and pillows. When they arrested her, they told her to gather some of her things. She's being arrested. The Fall Rivers Daily Herald reported that some bright bits of color and other things calculated to soften the abrupt contrast with the unhappy girl's own room have found their way into the prison cell. Lizzie also DoorDash dinners from the local hotel. And yes, I know it wasn't DoorDash, but y'all know what I'm talking about. But in June 1893, Lizzie's inquest testimony was inadmissible and Eli Benz would not be able to testify. So the prosic acid evidence was excluded because they said that it was too close in time and they thought it wasn't pertinent to the case. The victims died of being hacked to death, not poisoned. So what they tried to do is build a case saying that she had motive and that she really did not like her stepmother. While the inquest was going on, someone asked Lizzie about her mother. 
And she said, she's not my mother, she's my stepmother. My mother died when I was a child. So they tried to build a case with that. The defense built the case of they didn't have a murder weapon. They searched the house looking for a murder weapon. They found a, a handleless hatchet, which they tried to say that it was a murder weapon, but the blood was wiped off. They also found a bucket full of bloody rags and Lizzie told them that that was her monthly bucket of rags or whatever and they was just like Ooh, okay and they didn't look no farther into that during the trial her best friend but soon to not be her best friend Alice came forward y'all remember Alice now Alice came forward to testify that she witnessed Lizzie burning a dress records show that Alice said on Sunday I went into the kitchen and saw Lizzie standing by the stove she had a dress in her hand and said she was going to burn it because it was all covered with paint I said I'm afraid that's the worst thing you could have done Lizzie was burn that dress many feel that that dress was not covered in paint but it was covered in blood and it was the dress that she was wearing when she committed the murders the question is, of course, where was the dress when the police searched the house? But at that time, police would have never looked into a woman's personal belongings. Now, the day of the murder, they searched the house and they found an old hatchet. It was a handleless hatchet, which is now famous because everybody thinks that that could possibly be the weapon that killed Andrew and Abby but it's a handleless hatchet so what they did is they said that somebody broke the handle off because it was a lot of blood on it and they wiped it off and they put dust on it and they threw it back in the barn where they wanted it to look as if it hadn't been touched in a while so this trial was actually a mess. It was a mess on top of a mess because remember when they confiscated the bodies at the funeral? They confiscated the bodies at the funeral. They did a second autopsy. And while they were doing that second autopsy, they cut off, they actually cut off Abby and Andrew's head. They dipped the heads in acid and they cleaned off all the skin, nerves, and the hair. They ended up bringing those skulls into the courtroom to show the veracity of the holes that were in the head. When Lizzie and Emma saw it, Lizzie passed out again. This could have been a real faint, but I don't believe it was. They didn't know that they did this to their parents until that day. So when they took the bodies back to bury them initially they are currently lying in their caskets without their heads but Abby and Andrew's skulls they are now in a box buried three feet deep on top of their bodies you can actually look them up and they have replicas of their skulls in the Lizzie Borden house this trial took 10 days. On the 10th day, prosecution rests, turning everything over to the defense. The defense presented their case, their entire case, in one day. Lizzie and Emma, at one time, they did two things. They put out a, re a reward 
for anybody who had any information about this murder. And they also put out a notice trying to look the sick person who needed Abby to come and take care of him. Remember when Lizzie in part one, nobody came forward for that or for the $5,000 reward. On some days, Lizzie's attorneys had her walking in with a fan, you know, those little hand fans. Then she would come in with a bouquet of flowers in her arms. She just played it all up. Some people speculate that Lizzie did the crimes in the nude, but it still wouldn't explain why she didn't have blood on her hands, face, and like her hair. And how did she get dressed so quickly? Other people speculate that there's a coat stuffed up under Andrew's head in the crime scene. And they're thinking that she may have put that coat on, did the crime, and then stuffed it up under his head. It was also said that Andrew had a will or he was thinking about making up a will. And that's why Lizzie murdered him and Abby. Now, she murdered Abby first because had had Abby would have died last, everything would have went to Abby's family. So she had to murder Abby first and then Andrew because what everything from, from Abby goes to Andrew everything from Andrew goes to his kids had it would have been the other way around it would have went to Abby's family on June 20th 1893 Lizzie Borden was found not guilty by her peers which was 12 men who just simply could not see her doing a crime like this everyone cheered and Lizzie cried it took the jury 15 minutes for deliberation but they stayed in the room an extra hour out of courtesy to the district attorney they didn't want him to know that they already had made up their mind before they saw all of the evidence the court adjourned at 4 30 p.m later the jury went out and took a group picture so lizzie and emma went back home to their house in fall rivers massachusetts so within six months lizzie and emma moved out of that home and moved to a larger and more expensive home up on the hill on French Street, where all of the rich folks lived at. That's where Lizzie wanted to go anyway. So now Lizzie is living her best life. She's throwing parties for movie stars. She met Nance O'Neill. She had a maid. She had a coachman, which is a chauffeur. She decided to name the house Maplecroft, and she had the name chiseled into the stairs. And she renamed herself, not legally, but she started calling herself Lizbeth from Maplecroft instead of Lizzie Borden of Fall Rivers. Lizzie and Emma, they didn't sell the house. They just rented that out. So when Lizzie went back to Fall Rivers, her circle of acquaintance, they shrank. Everybody fell back from Lizzie. They was rooting for her when she was going through her case. But then when she was acquitted, nobody wanted to be bothered with her or wanted to be acquainted with her. Now, the same church that Lizzie did all of her good work in, on July 23rd, right after her acquittal, she went to church and she was surrounded by empty pews. Now, this is what happened. Her family owned a pew. And everybody knew that her family owned that particular pew. So knowing that she was acquitted, no one sat around on that pew. 
they didn't tell her that she wasn't allowed at that church anymore, but Lizzie knew and she never returned. So Emma really wasn't living her best life. She was living in mourning. Lizzie was partying it up and Emma wasn't feeling all of that partying. So Emma went to talk to the Reverend because I think she was in mourning or whatever, but she went and talked to the Reverend because she wasn't agreeing with how Lizzie was living with these parties and and the Reverend, the Reverend advised her that she should just move out. So after a particular party in 1905, Emma decided to pack up her shit and she left never to talk to Lizzie again. But rumor has it that Lizzie told Emma what she did and that's what made Emma abruptly just leave like that and never to talk to Lizzie again. And everybody else, they just shunned Lizzie while she lived up on the hill, they just shunned her. Every year to mark the anniversary, they would publish an annual reminder of their death. Even the neighborhood children was messing with her. That's where that song came from. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, gave her father 41. But just to be on the record, Abby was not hit 40 times. Andrew wasn't hit 41. Abby, they said, would look like she was hit like 18 or 19 times. And Andrew looked as if he was hit about 11 times. Unfortunately, with all of this money, Lizzie still didn't stop stealing. She was caught stealing up at Providence. And what happened was somebody came over her house and they admired one of her pictures. So Lizzie took it down and she wrapped it up and she gave it to her. Now the lady made a mistake and she broke the picture. So she was bringing it back to the store to get the picture fixed. Now the people that worked in the store, they they recognized the picture they called the police and a warrant was issued for her arrest we know she threw money at him lizzie borton she loved her animals she loved dogs she loved her cats she befriended her staff's children giving them nice little treats and presents on their birthdays and they called her auntie lizbeth lizzie died quietly at maplecroft on june 1st 1927 She was ill in her last year following a removal of a gallbladder of pneumonia. She was 66 years old. She left instructions to be laid at her father's feet in the Borden family plot at Fall Rivers Oak Grove Cemetery, less than a mile from her home. The mourners were few. The interment strictly private. Her grave is bricked to prevent any kind of disturbance. There, she also joined Abby, Sarah, and her infant sister who died at two years old, Alice. Emma died 10 days later at age 76. And there, reuniting the family in death, they lie together in perpetual rest less than two miles from the house on 2nd Street. At the time of her death, Lizzie was worth $250,000, equivalent to $5 million in 2022. She owned a house on the corner of French Street and Belmont, several office buildings, shares in several utilities, two cars, a large amount of jewelry. She left $30,000, equivalent to $678,000 in 2022 to the Fall Rivers Animal Rescue League and $500 equivalent to $11,000 in 2022 in trust 
for perpetual care of her father's grave. Her closest friends and cousins each received $6,000 each, equivalent to $136,000 today, and numerous friends and family members each received between $1,000 to $5,000 apiece, equal to $23,000 to $113,000. And I have one question that was not answered through all of my research. Why did Lizzie instantly get the money? Emma was the oldest. How much did she get? Because it seems as if Lizzie got everything and Emma didn't get anything. But then Emma did move out and she didn't have to. Maybe they just split it and everybody is just talking about Lizzie's share or Lizzie's half. Because Andrew was worth up to like $12 million when he died. So maybe I just answered my own question. All right. Oh, and this is juicy for me. Before I let you go, before I forget, Bridget Sullivan. Bridget Sullivan, she moved away never to return to Fall Rivers, and she was just getting her life when she moved away. She got married in 1905 to a man named John Sullivan. So on her deathbed in 1948, it said that Bridget confessed on her deathbed in 1948 that Lizzie, who was acquitted, paid Sullivan for her evasive testimony. Yep. Bridget lied on the stand. Yes. But I still don't think that she did both of them. And that, my friends, is the Lizzie Borden case. Okay, this is what I think happened. Uncle John was talking to Andrew after breakfast for about an hour. That was a distraction for Lizzie to go upstairs and off Abby. So that's what she did. And she was upstairs cleaning up after she offed her. Andrew and John was talking. And then Uncle John left to establish his alibi. Lizzie let Uncle John back in the house and he sat there and waited for Andrew to come back. And yes, he did hide out in the house, but with Lizzie's help. And he was just sitting there ready. He could have been in Lizzie's room. So when Andrew came back home, she went down to greet him since Bridget was down there as well. She was feeling out everybody. She knew that Andrew was going to stay down here and she know that she knew that Bridget was going up to her room to take a nap. So, okay, everybody is in place. Now she's able to go and get John, Uncle John from wherever he is, maybe her room. Uncle John comes down, he takes care of Andrew. Then she sends him to the basement to clean up and that's when she calls Bridget. Bridget comes down and then she goes to get the police and the doctor. By that time, Uncle John has been cleaned up already and he can leave with the murder weapon. Well, that's it for me. I hope you was able to follow my theory on what happened to Abby and Andrew Borton. 
because I really think that that's what happened. I, I, I think I got it. Now, I want to know what you think. What are your theories on what happened to Andrew and Abby Borden? Do you think at, do you really think that Lizzie did it? Or do you think that she had help? Or do you think that it was a conspiracy? It's so many, so many things out there. So many theories out there. People are saying that her and Bridget had something to do with it because her and Bridget was messing around with each other. It's just, it's crazy, child. What you think? Let me know. I got all of my information from a book named The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Cara Robertson. It was pretty good, but I might be a little partial anyway. So with that being said, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Up next is the missing segment. So for this week's missing segment, we got Xavier Greenlee Townsend, age 17, black male, brown eyes, 5'7", 110 pounds. Xavier was last seen in Euclid, Ohio on May 30th, 2023. He was wearing a white t-shirt, gray sweatpants, and black Crocs. If anyone have any information regarding the whereabouts of Xavier, contact the Special Victims Unit at 614-525-3555 or you can contact Crime Stoppers at 614-645-4749 or visit www.p3tips.com. Let's help bring Xavier home to his family. All right, Donuts, I want to thank you again for joining me on this very exciting episode for me. Don't ask me, but I love, I love, I love this story. Sorry, I hit the mic a little bit. If you enjoyed this case, hit that subscribe button so you will never miss another episode. If you have any insight on this case or any other case that I've covered, or if you have case suggestions, connect with the podcast on Twitter or Instagram. Or you can leave a 60-second message. All of those links are in the show notes. Until next time, stay safe, stay vigilant, and please, always, always, always trust your instincts. Baby, I don't know how many times I got to tell you.